Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Katie Tubb. She is a research fellow for energy and environmental issues at the Heritage Foundation. And Katie, thanks for joining us today. No, absolutely. Thanks for bringing me on. So today we're going to talk about your recent article that, you know, is if unless you're sleepwalking through life, you've probably heard about this uh, bizarre, you know, climate emergency that people are spouting about. But your article's entitled What You Need to Know About Biden's Climate Emergency. And maybe before we get started, can you maybe Cliff Notes version, what is he claiming is such an emergency? Well, you know, from the get-go, President Biden made clear that climate was one of his kind of organizing policy agendas back when he was a candidate, and then especially in his first month as president, he made that pretty clear. And so uh, what happened particularly last week uh, in Massachusetts uh, during one of his speeches, he uh, kind of upped the ante as far as rhetoric to say, I really do mean it. Climate is an emergency, and I am willing to use some dramatic emergency powers, or at least put that on the table to show you that I mean it. So that's kind of the the context is President Biden has been consistent in this message, but he's trying to uh, communicate to a particular wing of the Democrat Party that he really does mean it this time. And we should all be so alarmed that we're willing to give up freedom so as to do something about climate. Well, and we hear, you know, they've kind of set the stage with the COVID emergency powers, right? So that we can tell people what to do, what to put in their bodies, you know, how do we shut everything down? And now, you know, he, he as a candidate, as you mentioned, right, he, he basically said, you know, there's going to be a war on fossil fuels and they're my enemy. Um, but he's just going to use this to really just bypass Congress and just kind of legislate from his desk how he wants to be. It's almost like, you know, I'm the dictator and you plebes are going to do what I tell you to do, right? Exactly. You know, this has been going on for basically the full length of President Biden's term. But what I think was so clear last week with this speech is he is uh, helping Americans connect the dots about what he's doing and why he's doing it. So what I mean by that is in his first month as president, uh, President Biden launched a, an extensive regulatory agenda across the government to uh, basically do what you said, to pull Americans off of conventional energy, coal, oil, natural gas. That's where we get 79% of our total energy needs in this country. Uh, but what Biden said last week was to go through the front door and tell Americans that's what he's doing. <laughs> so in, in some sense, it was very uh, helpful and transparent. But in another sense, it's incredibly concerning because we've all signed on to this idea of the Constitution and three branches of government. And basically what Biden said last week was, Congress isn't doing what I think it ought to be doing. Therefore, I will do it by myself, regardless of Americans' opinions on what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And that should concern every American, no matter what party you ascribe to, no matter what you think about global warming, you know, that's a, that's not what we've agreed to in the Constitution. Uh, and it's a concerning thing when a president, no matter what party, uh, abuses um, emergency powers like that to behave as a king. 
and it's not only the Congress, right? You mentioned the three branches of government, right? We just had the Supreme Court tell the EPA in the case versus coal in West Virginia that, hey, EPA, you don't get to make these decisions. This has to go through Congress. You just can't unilaterally tell people what they can and can't do and what businesses can and can't do. And now he, he wants to subvert that too, right? And when they're not happy, what do they do, right? We're going to pack the bench or we're going to threaten Supreme Court justices. It really is, you know, nothing but bullying tactics, isn't it? Yeah. So the the trigger point here for President Biden's speech in Massachusetts last week was that West Virginia versus EPA case that you just referenced, as well as action, in, or I should say inaction in Congress. So West Virginia versus EPA was a pretty significant uh, environmental case saying, EPA, you cannot uh, employ or uh, deploy your clean power plan as under the uh, Obama administration, because Congress never gave you the authority to do so. And so you have to show your homework here of how you get from A to A to C. And it was even bigger in the sense that uh, the Supreme Court is now requiring all regulatory agencies to essentially show their homework. How did Congress tell you to do this? So that decision came down very end of June. It was a, a certainly a curtailing of the, this administration's climate agenda aspirations. But then uh, just recently, Congress turned down yet again um, loosely considered climate spending uh, programs in what's called the Build Back Better uh, budget reconciliation package. And that was kind of the last straw for a lot of people on the left to say, we can't take a defeat from the Supreme Court and from Congress. We're going to go back to the executive branch and force this through ourselves. Which will just end up going back to the judicial branch again, because then people will sue and try to stop all this. So, I mean, it's, exactly. a, it's a vicious cycle of people who, you know what, it's almost reminds you of the kid in the sandbox when he doesn't get his way. He's going to pick up all his toys and go home. Right, right. But the trouble is, you know, there's very little collateral damage with the kid walking and taking the ball right. and walking home. But right. when we constantly cycle these disagreements through a, a legal system that is itself rather broken, there's a lot of collateral damage. You know, the Clean Power Plan, even though it never went into effect, uh, was the trigger for a lot of uh, coal plants in particular to close. And, and we're seeing some of the ramifications of that now. So, yes, there's always more recourse. Our, our founders were very wise in the system that they created in the Constitution. But uh, there is a lot of damage in that process. And I think that's one reason I, I find uh, President Biden's willingness to push forward, regardless of what Congress and the Supreme Court have just said, to be very concerning. Well, and you, you mentioned it, right? There's, there's a small minority that think this is important. Matter of fact, it's so small that when you look at the polls, I think it's like 1% of the people uh, view this as a major issue. It's barely, I don't even know if it's in the top 10 of concerns of Americans with all the, you know, inflation, recession, all the craziness going on. But they're making it sound like, you know, if we don't do this, we're all going to die tomorrow, don't they? Yeah, you know, if you look at the uh, administration's rhetoric, I mean, it's it's all about climate, uh, and it makes you wonder who who is he, uh, who is he speaking to? The poll you referenced is from New York Times, so it's not a, a group like the Heritage Foundation 
or some conservative uh, bias. It's the New York Times, which we all know is very biased in a particular direction. Uh, And so to me, that just underscores how insignificant the climate issue is for Americans. And instead, it's issues like the economy, inflation, uh, you know, the things that are impacting the daily well-being of Americans. And ironically, President's uh, President Biden's climate agenda is exacerbating all of those concerns for Americans and certainly contributing to the high energy prices we're dealing with right now because the intent of that climate policy is to get rid of coal, oil, and natural gas in the long term. And as I said earlier, 79% of our energy needs come from those three resources and 90% of our transportation energy needs are met through petroleum. So the president's climate agenda is in direct opposition to Americans' daily well-being. Uh, And yet he's out there making climate the issue that apparently only 1% of Americans actually care about. I don't know if you saw the clip of, uh, I think it was a federal uh, person up in Michigan when they were trying to push these electric cars. And one of the reporters, because they had this electric car out front, they had it plugged in, and one of the reporters is like, hey, where do you get the power to charge this car? She goes, oh, from the building. And then the guy's like, no, no, where do you get the power? She goes, from the building. And then the guy who runs the utility company there, they asked him, well, where do you get the power that goes into the building to charge this car? And he's like, oh, we use coal plants. I did see that. And it was, I I empathized with the woman in this sense, that so many Americans, myself included, we take energy for granted. You know, we take it for granted that when we flip the light switch up, the lights come on, you know, the, the milk in my fridge is cold, um, those kinds of things. And, you know, I, so I empathize to that extent, but uh, it, that just makes policies like the, the President Biden or Biden administration's posture towards energy so maddening because it, it's, uh, it's playing on that um, ignorance or taking things for granted and hoping nobody notices. Well, and, you know, you, you look at, you know, they're talking about, you know, the seas are going to rise, I mean, the temperature, I mean, they just, they go on and paint this, you know, almost like apocalyptic uh, doomsday scenario. Yet you have, you know, all these people who are on board with this, you know, John Kerry drive or flying a private plane everywhere he can figure out that someone will let him land. You have the Obamas buying a place on Martha's Vineyard right on the ocean. Um so their actions, almost like COVID, right, don't speak to the words that they're, they're the fear they're trying to instill on in people, do they? Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. It's looking at, you know, what Americans have been through in the last two years with COVID, uh, both on the science and the policy side of that issue is, you know, all of the mess and the poor handling of, of that situation, both on the scientific debate and the policy debate, that is such a good picture of what has been happening in the climate conversation for probably the last 10 years, if not longer, that uh, politicians have been trying to hide behind a capital T, capital S, the science, what are actually policy choices that involve trade-offs, that involve costs, Occasionally, they involve benefits, but I think that's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be generous there. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, politicians have been evading responsibility uh, and trying to make a scientific debate sound like it's over 
and that if we don't act now, uh, you know, you clearly hate your grandchildren and don't care about the future and are a selfish, greedy person. <laughs> but that's not what this debate is about. It's about trade-offs. It's about um, meeting needs today and tomorrow, and how do we steward the environment well? Uh, but the, the left doesn't want to talk about nuance and trade-offs. It wants to push through an agenda that looks an awful lot like socialism and is sold with uh, scare tactics and catastrophism uh, that I don't think reflects the scientific debate very well either. Well, and in reality, they don't care about the people. They they talk about it, yet they want abortion up until the minute of birth, and they talk about infanticide. But, you know, so they talk about, you know, we want to stop hurricanes and all these terrible things that do that kill people, which, and I think in your article you mentioned is, you know, minuscule compared to what it was, you know, many, you know, 100 years ago or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It really is scary when, you know, they they say that they care about, you know, people when in reality they don't mind, uh, you know, killing the economy because that's what this, you know, climate emergency will do. And, and we can see the, the roots of it now. But it's all part of this, you know, world order, right? This world economic forum that's going on. And, you know, I mentioned to you right before we got on, you know, Klaus Schwab, one of the, you know, the head of this thing or the de facto head. You know, just came out the other day and said, you know what? We don't want any personal ownership of cars. And we need to stop doing that. And you know that this just keeps going and going and going. There's, there really isn't an end point. It's, isn't it really? It just seems to be about control. What are your thoughts? I, I would agree very much. To me, the climate yeah. policy conversation is basically just a Trojan horse for socialism. Uh, you look at all of the policy proposals out there. And they all come down to centralizing solution-making power in D.C. and generally not with Congress, but with bureaucrats. And it all has to do with uh, centrally managing our energy system and our transportation system, which, if you think about it, are kind of the uh, basic fabric of our society. You know, we're having this conversation now because of energy. I made it to work this morning because of energy. If you want to go another layer, I'm wearing contacts right now. Contact lenses are a fossil fuel product. (laughs) So all of these layers of energy that make my life better, more productive, healthier. Uh, But this is exactly what uh, so many of these climate solutions, quote unquote solutions, are trying to centralize and plan and manage. Uh, and it's all another way of pushing towards a government-designed system, a government-designed economy, which is another way of saying socialism. Um, you know, and I don't think, from a limited human perspective, I think there's so much lack of wisdom in that approach. You know, I think our founders had a very uh, wise, biblically informed approach in the Constitution, acknowledging that people are limited and that we are uh, well-intended, but often misguided. And I think there's, we could go on a long conversation about the faults of socialism and why there's a much better approach to that. But at the end of the day, I think that's what these climate policies are often about, is a, another way of pushing socialism in a through a means of which people are less likely to detect. 
Well, and we see, right, you can look at Venezuela. I mean, there's a lot of examples and Venezuela very rich in fossil fuels, but because of their embracing of socialism, right, the, the whole economy and everything has gone right down the toilet. And it's it's it really is, you know, all about power and not really a care about the people at all, because every time we've seen, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, the Bolshevik Bolshevik revolution, this communism, this thing's gone, it's really about treating people as widgets and letting the elite do whatever they want to do. And it just seems like when we look at this and what's going on around the world, it, it, it just doesn't seem to stop. Right. And you've probably been following what's going on in the Netherlands. And now we got Trudeau getting into the act, you know, we're going to go after farmers because, you know, nitrogen is, is a big problem and the ammonia gas. So we're going to get rid of fertilizer and get rid of our, our animals. I mean, doesn't it, it just seems ridiculous, but these people get a foothold and they just keep going, don't they? Yeah, I think some of it is uh, well-intended and misinformed. And I think some of it is uh, not well-intended and very well-informed. And they're uh, very clear of what they're trying to do. Climate uh, is a vehicle for both parties. Um, so I'm not going to guess that, you know, we're, Trudeau would fall into that spectrum, but I think nitrogen is a really good example of, okay, there are trade-offs involved, but have we gained more by fertilizing crops via nitrogen ammonia uh, so as to help people and to get rid of uh, poverty and hunger to a degree that we don't even recognize anymore? I mean, poverty used to be the status quo for the vast majority of humanity in the last basically 200 years that's gone to a very small number of people uh, in the world, even as global population has increased, you know, four or five fold. Um, and that's thanks to things like fertilizer. <laughs> so it's these trade-offs that the left does not want to acknowledge. Um, you know, they're making, we, I mean, this is again, being more generous than I think is accurate, but they're making, the perfect, the enemy of the good, and not acknowledging that there are severe human costs to the agenda that they're pushing. Um, certainly not for the wealthiest among us, but um, there's a lot of people that would be uh, quote-unquote collateral damage to these kinds of policies that uh, the Trudeaus or the Dutch or Sri Lanka is another great example. These countries um, are giving us very good uh object lessons of what not to do and what the costs are of such uh, radical proposals. It just seems like they see these things happen. And you know what? I don't care. I'm pushing through with it anyway. You know, we've seen, right, England, Italy, you mentioned Sri Lanka, right? Their leaders have either resigned or were forced to resign because of the terrible job and the the economics and what they do with COVID. I mean, the whole thing and what they're doing with the, the climate change. People are getting fed up. We're seeing, you know, the Dutch farmers uh, blockading roads and, and, and doing all kinds of things to protect their livelihood. They really are attacking the, the working class throughout the world. And the working class has basically said, I've had enough. I mean, I'm sure with what you're doing, you probably see quite a bit of that uprising and those people just getting fed up with these ridiculous policies. Yeah, I think Americans are starting to wake up. Um, you know, we, 
we talked about the slowly warming pot of water and it's getting to more and more of a boiling point where, where people are realizing we're experiencing this pain for a reason. <laughs> this wasn't an accident. There were policy choices made that are leading to these kinds of consequences. And we see examples of that in Europe, I think is a very good example of uh, the trajectory of President Biden's policy agenda. You know, Europe has been pursuing a policy agenda that looks very much like President Biden's, but they've been doing it for the past 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, they've been uh, subsidizing wind and solar. They've been intentionally curtailing their own production of coal, oil, natural gas, and in some cases, nuclear. And the result is they've had to fill that void of energy by imports naturally from Russia. So that when Russia reinvaded Ukraine, Europe was left flat-footed with basically no options and a crisis situation on their hands. And if you look at what their governments are talking about right now, it's austerity measures to curtail natural gas use now so that come this winter, they'll at least have something to work with to keep homes warm and lights on, uh, which is in incredibly important in winter because cold is much more deadly than hot weather. So, you know, I think we know where this policy experiment goes. It looks like Europe or it looks like closer to home. It looks like California. There are reasons California has some of the most expensive energy, whether you're talking about gasoline, electricity, or heat uh, in the country. And it's because they've pursued policies that look like President Biden's. And what President Biden is basically trying to do is nationalize California's energy and climate policies. Um, so I, I don't think we should be surprised, but I think it's incumbent on Americans to connect these dots and then start demanding a different policy trajectory. Because at the end of the day, these are choices that are being made, not things that we have no control over. You know, when you're talking about energy and you're talking about this climate crisis, right, it's, it affects everybody. And to your point, people need to, people need to start speaking up about this and say enough is enough. We've got to stop electing people who think the environment is more important than the people, right? I understand there's a trade-off, right? We don't want to pollute rivers and kill fish and do things, but there is a trade-off, right? God gave us dominion over the animals and the earth and you know, even the Vatican, it's, it's sad to say, has gotten into this. You know, I know the, the Pope just came out the other day about talking about eating meat. Well, if he was that worried about it, he should stop, you know, reimpose or, or remind people that, you know, fasting for meat on Fridays throughout the whole year is something people still should be doing. But he's gotten into it with Laudato Si being involved in the World Economic Forum. So it really is people just need to use common sense and see what's going on and you know, they need to vote and they need to speak up. What else should people be doing? Well, you know, I think it's exactly as you said. We need to be wise and not just well-intended um, because we all want a good environment. We want a healthy environment. You know, I don't think any one party has a, a monopoly on that issue. So I think we need to uh, continually be thinking through the uh, costs and benefits of the policies that we prefer, you know, We've talked a lot about greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate, but is that really the most important, let alone the only priority when it comes to promoting uh, environmental stewardship and human well-being? And I would say 
no. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of other environmental issues that we can uh, be thinking through constructively um, and, and not making climate the end-all be-all because in the end, a lot of these policies push poverty and poverty is probably one of the worst things we can do to steward the environment. Um, data shows time and time again that wealthier societies have the bandwidth to take care of the environment better and poorer societies don't at all. Um, and so, you know, I think that's another thing Americans can be doing in addition to engaging with the political process is to think critically about uh, not just what we want, but how we get there. Um, I think so many of our pitfalls in political conversations is that we are well-intentioned, but we're not wise about how we get there and the tools we use to get there. And to me, that's such a pitfall in this climate discussion. Well, and with everything, right? And, and you know, the old saying is if everything's an emergency, nothing's an emergency. And every time right. there's something comes up, right, they claim it's an emergency and, you know, the ends justify the means. You know, we hear all this stuff going on and on. And you just you look at them and think, good grief, is is the temperature rising one degree more important than than a hundred thousand people dying from fentanyl every year, which we do nothing about. I mean, we don't seem to know how to prioritize, do we? No, and I I think that's a really good example. You know, if you look at climate deaths, they have uh, climate related deaths related to um, things like tornadoes, hurricanes. It's fallen ninety six percent over the last decade. And yet when you look at the CDC stats for issues like drug overdoses, it far exceeds any kind of natural disaster death counts in the United States or globally. You know, to me, that is a priority question of, okay, what can I do? What can we do policy-wise, state-wise to solve problems that are staring us right in the face that are very solvable as opposed to this climate issue, which we've seen actually quite a lot of uh, progress in helping people uh, withstand uh, the whims of weather, which will always be with us no matter what uh, we think about climate change or otherwise. If you like the content of these shows that we produce on a weekly basis, please prayerfully consider supporting us. Go to ccdenver.org, click on the donate button, and then click on Respect Life Denver to support this programming. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.